1: Welcome to the Seth Liebson Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Seth today. Before the break, last two segments of the, of the first hour, we were talking with uh, economist Mark Perry, who has filed more than 400 civil rights complaints based on Title VI and Title IX, uh, alleging race and sex discrimination against American colleges and universities. It's a, it's a systemic problem. And, and Mark, one of the one of the curious things about this, I think, is that the the original premise for for having all these special programs, special opportunities, special scholarships, et cetera, for women was that women supposedly were were a marginalized or underrepresented group. And one of the ironies is that's not true at all anymore. Fact is, women dominate higher education.
2: Probably been one of the most remarkable ed- education success stories in American history is the rise of American women in higher education, and so Title IX was passed in 1972 because the original Civil Rights Act of 1964 didn't include sex as a protected class; it was race, color, national origin. So, in 1972, the feminists were organized and they passed Title IX. And back then, it was about 60% men in college versus 40% women. So at that time, women were clearly underrepresented and were a minority. But within about six or seven years or towards the end of the 70s, women outnumbered men in enrollment in higher education. And then by the early 80s, women outnumbered men for degrees at all levels, or at least at the associate level, the the bachelor's level, and the master's level. And then about 12 years ago, they started outnumbering men for doctoral degrees. So, and now today it's about, you know, 59% women um, uh, or women get about 59% share of college degrees, which means 144 women are earning college degrees for every hundred degrees that men are earning today. So it's a clear gender imbalance. So you're right. So it's kind of this disconnect where it's almost as if we're back in the 1940s or 1950s as, as if women... We're facing barriers and obstacles and even, you know, direct discrimination in terms of trying to be successful in higher education when it's exactly the opposite. Now, men have actually been an underrepresented minority in America's higher education for 40 years now, since the early 1980s. And so now, I mean, usually it's the underrepresented minorities that are the ones that are, um, you know, eligible for a greater share of campus resources because they're in the minority, now it's still, it's a, again, this disconnect because women are the clear majority of college students, and yet they continue to get all of the disproportionate share of campus resources in terms of special mentoring programs, women's centers, women's scholarships, women fellowships. And so, again, it's not justified anymore. Women are, you know, it's unnecessary anymore to provide women with a, you know, this favoritism given the fact that they have been so successful in higher education and now have become way more successful than men. And so again, it's like as if it's not only illegal for women to get this disproportionate share of campus resources, but it doesn't make sense. It's unnecessary based on the fact that women are just so highly successful in higher education today.
1: So, Mark, you've filed hundreds of these complaints against, against colleges and universities. How do they generally respond? I've, I'm curious about this. I mean, do they hate you? Do they lash out at you? Do they, do they deny the truth? Do they, you know, try to deny the facts? They're not really discriminating? Or are they surprised? Like, I thought discrimination was okay as long as we're doing it in favor of certain groups. Well, what kind of responses do you
2: get? Yeah, well, it's interesting, John, because in the beginning, I thought, okay, I'm going to start this kind of civil rights advocacy. I'll just go directly to the school, which is how I started when I was at University of Michigan. I went directly to the school and to their Title IX office and said, hey, I'm aware of these programs. There were some female um, faculty award programs that I wasn't eligible for, and so I complained about it, and they changed them, and then now those have been converted. They're open to all faculty. And so then in the beginning, back in like 2018, I would start approaching the Title IX office of a university and say, hey, I'm aware of these violations, um, and I'd like to see if you would correct these. And most of the time, they would just ignore me because as an unaffiliated person with the university, you're not a student, you're not a parent, you're not a faculty, you're not staff, you're not an alumni, and they have no obligation to even respond to an external complaint. So then I realized, well, I better just start going right to the you know Office for Civil Rights because the Office for Civil Rights is obligated to respond to Title IX and Title VI complaints. So then when I file a complaint, and then once they open it for an investigation, then they send a letter to the president of the university. So it goes all the way to the top because it's very serious for a university to violate federal civil rights law. So the president of the university gets notified that they are under investigation. I usually um, – I mean, I always – disclose my name or on the consent form, I say it's okay, so I believe that the universities generally know who I am, but I never really deal with them directly, and so I think the responses um, are kind of mixed, where some universities kind of just agree or, or they realize that they're in violation, and if they're honest, then they will discontinue the program, so just today I got an email from the Cleveland Office for Civil Rights and for a complaint I filed against Miami University of Ohio they had this Distinguished Woman of Color Award that they've been giving out for, I don't know, I think about 10 years. And so once they're confronted by the fact that, hey, this is illegal, that's a violation of both Title IX and Title VI because it's only for women and only for women of color. So then they just agreed to terminate the program. So I think if the university is honest and they will then you know realize they have an obligation to enforce Title IX and Title VI, then maybe about half the time, they'll just say, okay, we're going to just discontinue this program. Or in cases, uh, if it's a single-sex female-only program, they'll, they'll convert it and make it into a co-educational program. I think in other cases, universities kind of fight for as long as possible, and they'll just try to make some minor changes. So it'll still really be, you know, the women's um, STEM program or the women's engineering mentoring program. But they'll kind of still call it with the name women in the title of the program But then they'll kind of pretend that, you know, even though this program is focused on women, it's really open to all students, regardless of gender. So then I think that's a dishonest way to pretend that they're going to be open to all genders when they're really going to continue as a girl-only or female-only program. So it's kind of a mixed bag of agreeing that they're in violation and making a legitimate, honest correction. But then about half the universities will make this very, very very minor corrections and continue with business as usual, usually being enabled by an office for civil rights that has their thumb on the scale in favor of the colleges and universities by allowing them to continue to violate federal civil rights laws if they just make some minor cosmetic changes that they don't change the name of the program.
1: Mark, we've got a little less than uh, three minutes left in this conversation. And and uh, of course, we're on the air in Phoenix, and I know you have had some dealings with um, with schools here in Arizona. Talk about that a little bit. Have you, have you seen these this, these types of discrimination uh, in, in Arizona schools?
2: Yeah, I mean, almost every major university in the country, John, I think violates Title IX and or Title VI. And, you know, I can spend, give me 10 or 15 minutes on any major college's website, and I'll be able to find some discriminatory programs. So Arizona State and University of Arizona, both have multiple violations, especially in the area of, you know, engineering. So, for example, at the University of um, Arizona, and they made some minor changes now because they're under investigation, but they have all sorts of um, programs for female students in engineering. So, they have, you know, freshman mentoring program for women. They have um, a number of mentorship programs. They have Introduce a Girl to Engineering Day. They have you know, special orientations. They have special funding. And so that's an area where because women are still underrepresented in engineering and computer science, that's where a lot of the discrimination takes place because even though women are overrepresented overall, because they're still a minority in computer science and engineering, that's where you find a lot of discriminatory programs. Arizona State has a number of different um Single-sex women-only programs. I was just notified today that two of their women-only scholarships have been discontinued. So again, they kind of took an honest response and and they agreed to end these two discriminatory programs. And so uh, it's almost every university in the country. But yeah, Arizona State University of Arizona have their share of Title IX violation.
1: All right, we've been talking with uh, Mark Perry of the American Enterprise Institute. Mark, you are doing the Lord's work. Please. Uh, Please do keep it up, and thank you for being on the Seth Liebson Show. We're going to go to a break and be back with more. Welcome back. I'm John Hinderacher from Powerline, filling in for Seth this afternoon. And in this segment, I'd like to return to a topic that we talked about earlier in the program and and that is the canadian truckers uh, revolt and if you want to tell us what you think about the canadian uh, trucker protest that of course has grown into something even far beyond that uh, give us a call the number is 602 0960 602 0960 and there's another aspect of this whole situation that, that you and I didn't talk about in, in the earlier segments, but which is also really interesting, along with everything else going on here. And that is that uh, a number of, of supporters of these protesters, these demonstrators, set up a GoFundMe account to help support them because they can't stay in Ottawa indefinitely without without having food and other kinds of supplies, gasoline, you know, whatever it might be. and And so... Their supporters had raised uh, somewhere, somewhere in excess of eight million dollars, eight million U.S. dollars uh, to support the uh, the trucker anti-mandate uh, protest, and and GoFundMe all of a sudden terminated that fundraising effort, alleging that uh, it was supporting violence, which build. I don't know of any basis for that claim on the part of
3: GoFundMe. Do you? No, uh, we've we've seen GoFundMe do this before, to the point that it, it made me ask they can they raised eight million. What took them so long? You figure they'd shut that down you know, before they reached one million.
1: Yeah, the only violence I know of in Ottawa, in Ottawa is that some guy who was opposed to the trucker protest ran his Jeep into a group. Of demonstrators, uh, injuring four of them, and then drove away at a high speed. Later, he got caught and arrested. But that was the vehicular attack on the the uh, pro-trucker uh, demonstrators. That's the only violence that that I know of that's happened in, in in Ottawa. But we've seen this time after time after time. I mean, these tech oligarchs. Doesn't matter if you're talking about about Jack Dorsey at Twitter or Mark Zuckerberg at at Facebook or whatever they're calling it these days or or the folks at uh at Google or the folks at Apple or here in this case the people at uh, GoFundMe which is which is run I believe by a former McKinsey consulting group executive they're all on the left and and uh they they all misuse their powers to try to advance uh, leftist causes. And, and and that I think is what happened here. GoFundMe just wanted to weigh in on the side of government and on the side of um, of repression. But it didn't last very long. Originally, GoFundMe said that they were gonna if you you had you'd have to put in an application to get a refund and anything that, that wasn't refunded to to the original donors they were going to give to some other group of charities of their choice, right? And it's kind of amazing. It's kind of like we were talking before the break with Mark Perry, these colleges and universities that engage in blatant race discrimination. Just blatant. A blatant sex discrimination. And then when they're caught, it's like, oh, what do you mean? There's something wrong with that? And, and, you know, that's what we're seeing from GoFundMe. Apparently, it came as a surprise to them that they can't just misappropriate these funds and give them to somebody else. Uh, that would have been, I think, a, a criminal conversion of, of the donor's property, uh, simple theft, you know, whatever, whatever, however it would be described under the relevant states law and and Ron DeSantis, the great, great governor of, of Florida, did a did tweet in which he said, look, this is theft. I'm going to tell the Attorney General of of, of Florida to investigate, go fund me for misappropriating these funds. And um, and Elon Musk weighed in too uh, saying this is this is ridiculous. And so, goFundMe quickly uh changed course, and they said, "Oh n- never mind, we're not going to give the money to some other charity. uh we are going to automatically refund it to the people who um who actually contribute it to the uh, to the trucker protest, so those folks are all getting their money back in the meantime the uh the truckers have found um Another uh, another uh, platform that's kind of like GoFundMe, and it's called – Bill, do you remember what it's called? It's called Give, Send, Go or something like that? Oh, I haven't heard bell? of that
3: one. It, it's just good to know there's a conservative or at least a non-left alternative to GoFundMe.
1: Yeah, I don't know if it's conservative. I, I think it may actually be Christian in orientation, although I'm not certain about that. I got a bunch of notes here and I'm fumbling around. I don't see it, but I think it's called Go, uh, Give, Send, Go, maybe. Give, Send, Go. In any event, they've, they've already got uh, 4 or $5 million worth of support on, uh, on that platform. And Bill, I don't know what you think about this, but it seems to me that we've gotten to the point where we conservatives or we non-leftists don't, just don't have any choice but to be selective about, about tech platforms that we support. So yeah. I don't think we should support GoFundMe, even if it's for a you know a cancer victim or something. You know what I mean? Even if it's not for something that they would censor. I, I think we should avoid them. I think we should avoid Twitter. I think we should avoid Facebook. You know, Facebook spent hundreds of millions of dollars in the 2020 election, as I'm sure our listeners know, to implant left-wing activists in the electoral systems of a number of swing states so that they've got left wing activists actually running the election. It's unbelievable. It's like if you it's like if you hired the referees for the Super Bowl, put them on your payroll. And, And I don't know how how we can react to that other than by boycotting, by just avoiding these these companies that have declared themselves to be companies of the left. What do you think, Bill? Do we have any choice?
3: It's, it's tough. It, I, I'm a big fan of not using these companies as you are, John. But boy, an example I use is if you want to buy a computer and both Microsoft and Apple are on the left, what do you do? Sometimes it's unavoidable. But yeah, the, to, the, to the best that we can avoid them, I, I'd love to do so.
1: Well, it's like when uh, Apple and Microsoft and Amazon ganged up on Parler a relatively conservative rival to Twitter and put them out of business. Apple and and uh, Microsoft simultaneously announced that they were deleting the parlor app from their app stores. And at the same time, Amazon terminated their hosting contract. You know, their 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 web access was being hosted on on Amazon's servers as a huge percentage of the internet is. And, and simultaneously, these three tech giants just cut off Parler at the knees. And Parler has been struggling ever since to try to get, get going again. But this is, this is the kind of thing that we're seeing from the left. And um, it, it's a big problem. I think maybe we'll talk about it some more later in the program. But for now, I believe we need to uh, go to a break. And I think that when we return, we are going to be joined by my friend, the great
4: Heather McDonald.
1: Welcome back to the program. I'm John Hinderocker, filling in for Seth Today, and we are delighted to be joined now by Heather McDonald. Heather, thank you so much for being on the program.
4: Thank you so much for having me on, John. I love talking to you.
1: Heather, you and I have talked a lot about crime over the years, but but today I want to I talk about something quite different, and that is the baleful impact that the left is having on the arts. I know that you are a huge student and fan of music, and, and you wrote a powerful piece in, in City Journal about the move by symphony orchestras to do away with blind auditions, specifically in order to enable race discrimination. It's, it's just it's shocking, but, but tell our listeners about that.
4: Well, yes, whether your listeners are deeply invested in classical music or not, Classical music is simply an example of what is happening throughout our culture, where every cultural accomplishment that we have been privileged to inherit from European civilization is now being torn down, impugned, discredited, uh, hated because of the traditional demographics of Europe, which were white, just as way the traditional demographics of Africa were black, Our demographics were white. Uh, and any institution that uh, reflects that inheritance is now being called on completely specious ground racist. So classical or- cl- music or- orchestras are now among the most meritocratic institutions that exist. Uh, the musicians audition behind a screen, so the audition committee has no idea who is actually playing the instrument. Uh, And the fact of the matter is that the orchestras are these days predominated by Asians. I was just at a concert of the New York Philharmonic, and virtually the entire first violin section uh, was, was probably all Asian females. It was extraordinary. Because there are not a proportional number of blacks in orchestras, for various historical and cultural reasons, the call now is to remove the screen so that orchestras can hire, not on the basis of musical accomplishment, but on the basis of race. And that is a betrayal of musical excellence. It is going to destroy the caliber of orchestras, not that there aren't lots of competitively qualified black musicians but they may not be enough to reach a 13% quota. Uh, and the real problem with all of this, and, and the same attack is going on against the music itself. Uh, young people are taught to think of Bach and Mozart and Haydn and Beethoven and Schumann and Chopin and Brahms not as geniuses who expanded our understanding of human expression and human pathos, and human longing, and the capacity to reach the sublime through music, they're being taught to think of them not with gratitude, but rather to look down upon these greats as simply white males. Uh, and, And this is a crusade that most outrageously is being conducted by the leaders of classical music organizations themselves, orchestra directors, orchestra managers, opera managers. Why? Because these so-called guardians are just as pathetic, just as cowardly as university presidents or foundation heads in standing up to the ignorant race, race-baiting race mob.
1: Well, that puts it very well, Heather. And, of course, there's a lot, there, there are a couple of things going on here, or not going on here. Obviously, audiences aren't demanding this, right? Audiences just want to hear good classical music.
4: Completely. And, by and large, you would think that conductors, too, care there. Conductors are fanatically perfectionist. Uh, they just want the best, the most solid French horn player who's not going to flub his solo. They want the most expressive concertmaster. The idea that any conductor has been discriminating against accomplished black musicians is absurd. Uh, but yes, audiences just want to hear beauty, and instead they're being put through a gamut now of, of Black Lives Matter-inspired programming. Uh, if you're a black composer, a black musician today... You've got it made. I mean the, the commissions are pouring in the, the, Hey Heather, the we got we gotta run
1: to a we gotta run to a break, but I wanna pick up with what's happening in art museums when we come back from this break.
4: We are back and we are talking
1: with Heather McDonald. Heather, before the break we were talking about the deliberate introduction of race into what had previously been really a pure meritocratic process in 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 the world's symphony orchestras. And and it just seems like a tragedy to me, but I want to shift gears and and, and talk about a related a different but related phenomenon in the in the visual arts. And, Heather, I know how much you love music. I'm not as much of a music lover as you are, but I do love art. And so this piece, this brand-new piece that you've got at City Journal, The Guardians in Retreat, about what's happening, taking you off from the docent program at the, uh, at the Chicago Art Institute, um, I, I found really pro- uh, powerful. Let's start by just describing to our, to our listeners what, what's going on there with the docent program.
4: Well, uh Chicago's docents have been a key to art education for decades now. Uh you know, they've they've educated generations of children about art about art from across the world uh, and they were celebrated by the management of the Chicago uh Institute of uh, Art Institute of Chicago until quite recently, 2012. Uh but but this last year uh... the art institute told all of its docents that it was basically you couldn't fire them because they're volunteering they're, they've gone through enormous amount of training to be service donors but it was letting them all go and terminating the docent program for one reason uh... the docents were overwhelmingly white uh... and and this is what's happening john in every institution if you want a simple key to what's happening to Western civilization? Anything white is coming down. It is all coming down, uh, and the left-wing head of the art institute has decided that having white docents is inimical with the institute's new mission to be anti-racist. So it is. It is going to now have a very small cadre of paid art in, uh, educators, as, uh, rather than a hundred. To serve the massive need, it's going to have about six because it's going to have to pay them salaries and benefits. But this is hoping that it will be able to get black docents in there that, uh, paid, paid docents. We'll see about that. Uh, but the woman who administered the coup de grace of these docents is just your classic diversity hire brought in not out of any art knowledge, but because of her commitment to anti-racist pedagogy. So, you know, if you've been to the Art Institute, you've seen its unparalleled collection. I'm a particular fan of its 18th century rococo pastel portraits, but it's got a fantastic Egyptian, uh, Greek antiquities collection and Asian art, an early collector of Japanese art, fine art. All this is now going to be presented under the pall of unacceptable whiteness.
1: And so they have currently, or they have had, something like 100 docents, volunteers. These are basically the people who give tours, right, and explain the right. art to visitors. Right. And they, But they've been unpaid volunteers, but they've been very well trained. They go through a rigorous, rigorous training in, in art. And so now they're going to be replaced with six paid but part-time employees who are going to be trained in anti-racism which uh, is, is, just, is just shocking to me.
4: Well, it's, it's happening everywhere. You know, art history departments, Yale University had a famous and beloved uh, introductory two, two-part sequence on the history of Western art. I had the privilege of taking it under this famed art historian, Vincent Car- Scully, who was about as charismatic as a teacher you could ever hope. And Yale University decided to cancel the sequence, because it had too much of an emphasis on, on Western art, but that was its very purpose. You know, it's not as if Yale doesn't offer a lot of art history courses on Africa, on India, on China, on, on, on South American art, but, but anything now that is associated with the Western European tradition has to justify itself. I've got a piece coming out on the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Uh, it subjects its Dutch masters—that is, Vermeer, Rembrandt, Frans Hals—to deconstructive wall texts, complaining about the fact that there are white males. They're not dealing enough with slavery and colonialism in their paintings, uh, teaching teaching viewers. It complains that still lives don't deal with colonialism. Well, a still life is a is not a portrait of human beings. It's a portrait of things that, that the artist sees as beautiful. Uh, and yet here's the Met teaching viewers to say, oh, shame on you, uh, you know, Halls, for not, not giving us a woke view of reality. In the meantime, it's got to show up on African art. None of these deconstructive gestures are being made. The African art is being treated with kid gloves with infinite curatorial respect, at the same time that European art is being treated as something shameful because it does not explicitly deal with Black Lives Matter themes.
1: And, of course, the situation here is essentially the same as it is with regard to music. The European tradition, which is the American tradition, or the vast bulk of the the American tradition, um, uh, d- developed in places where, where the people who lived there were overwhelmingly white. You know, right. so we're talking about, you know, French painters and British painters, Italian painters yes. and Spanish and German painters. And yes, yes, they were overwhelmingly white. Just like painters in, in Japan or, or in, or in China were overwhelmingly Asian and artists in, in Africa were overwhelmingly black. And, but what's wrong with that, Heather? I mean, why 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 this mania to denigrate our own tradition?
4: The hatred of of white western elites for its past is unprecedented and to answer that question is a very difficult task. I think it's very bound up with our contemporary challenges and discomfort with Uh, the continuing racial skills gap, the crime gap, and all of that now is being projected onto our tradition, rather than looking at the problems of inner-city culture head-on and saying, you know, racial disparities today are not due to American racism. Yes, America was a Appallingly racist country for much of its history, much later than many conservatives even want to acknowledge. I agree that with that, you know, 60, 1960s and 70s, we were still treating blacks with just cruelty and contempt. But the world has changed. Now to be black is to be privileged. You want to, if your son, if you want to get your son into Harvard, hope he's black because if he's a straight white male, forget about it. Um, so we're not wanting to deal with the fact that contemporary racial disparities are based on really a pathological inner-city culture that glorifies law-breaking, that looks down on academic accomplishments, acting white, and instead of dealing with that, we're involved in this self-flagellation about phantom racism and we are turning on our cultural inheritance as a way to somehow make reparations. All we're going to end up doing is immiserating children's imaginations, depriving them of, of just pride and, and destroying a civilization.
1: Heather, can you hang on through a real short break here for just a couple more minutes? Sure, would love to. Thanks. We'll be right back. We are back with Heather McDonald, and we've been talking about the, the race-based assault on... Um, on the arts, and uh, Heather, I would say it's blindingly obvious that the terrible problems they have in South Chicago, the enormous number of shootings, the, ga- the gang violence, has nothing to do with the Art Institute. The Art Institute <laughs> d- didn't cause those problems, and there is nope. nothing you can do with the Chicago Institute That's of correct. Arts, up to and including burning it to the ground, that would have the slightest impact on those problems. It's, this whole thing seems like a massive non sequitur to me.
4: Well, John, you're absolutely right to point this out. And it's, it's a non sequitur and it's also just an act of grandiose narcissism. These, these institution leaders want to blame themselves for problems not of their own making in order to pretend that they have control over those solutions. They don't. But it is really sort of an act of puffing oneself up to beat one's chest and say, oh you know i'm so racist and i'm i'm responsible for you here that's that's just a way in it's a weird way of seizing power but in our current world which is so obsessed with phantom racial victimology putting yourself in the in the center of that crusade is a way to say ah oh, look at me i'm important and i have something to contribute in the post george floyd world to eradicating america's systemic Uh, you know, white supremacy, which I'm using in scare quotes, and lest any of your readers misunderstand me, I do not think currently we have a problem with systemic white supremacy in the United States.
1: So, Heather, we've got just two minutes to go here. What can we do about this? I mean, people who actually go to art museums, people like me, for example, the last thing they want is to have art museums turned into, you know, monuments to George Floyd. And it's the same with people who love classical music. What what can those of us who care about the arts do to fight back?
4: Well, if you have a membership, you know, you can say, I, I do not intend to renew Uh, My membership, if you continue this way, for instance, the Metropolitan Museum of Art on Thursday night is putting on a production of Beethoven's opera, Fidelia, which is based on the 18th century, uh, a a woman who, who sacrifices herself to save her husband from a tyrant. It's rewritten the opera to be about Black Lives Matter and the oppression of American blacks by the police. What does this have to do with the Metropolitan Museum of Art? Nothing. But there's going to be discussion afterwards about black oppression in the American criminal justice system. If you're a member of the Metropolitan Museum, write the museum and say, what are you doing with my membership dollars? I expect you to curate... The legacy of world civilization to make it available to explain it, to teach young people why they should be down on their knees in gratitude, not to teach them to hate, which is what these gestures are doing. And, and when you hear, you know, people talk about racism or call you a racist for speaking the truth, don't cave, don't apologize. If you're ever in a position where you're being canceled for saying something that is true, never, ever apologize.
1: Never apologize, never retreat, never cave. Heather McDonald, you're one of the heroines of American life. We appreciate your being on the Seth Liebson Show. We'll be back after these messages.